Good morning. How's everybody? Gosh, this site's like empty. <laughs> Let's stand up. I know. You should know. We have a ritual here that we do. <laughs> Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Just thank you for the people that are here. We pray your blessing of abundance and increase and life and peace and joy in their lives. Ask you to anoint me and give me utterance by the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at a couple of stories in the Gospels to start out. Luke chapter 4. Um, and then we'll go to Mark chapter 5, story that we've looked at a number of times. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus is in Nazareth and he says, he's quoting from Isaiah in verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus defines his purpose there. He says nothing in there about dying for your sins or hell or heaven, nothing. Uh, another verse I want to just quote for you is John chapter 10, verse 10, one of my favorite verses. Uh, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said that I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly or in abundance so the purpose that jesus came we can see here was healing and liberation right and restoration and that you might have life and not just have life but have it to the full have it abundantly the amplified version says that you might have and enjoy life right now come with me in mark's gospel Chapter 5, very familiar story. The woman with the issue of blood is all happening while Jairus, a guy named Jairus, who's the ruler of the synagogue. So the ruler of the synagogue is a big shot, big boy, right? Top of the ladder, at least in Israel at that time. As close as you could get without being, you know, the high priest or part of the Sanhedrin or whatever, right? Got it? <clears throat> and then there's the, so, so he comes and says his daughter is lying at the point of death. So she's just about to die. And he tells Jesus, come lay your hands on her and she'll be healed and she will live. But there's a sense of urgency. So Jesus is walking through a crowd with Jairus, and we're told in the story that people are thronging him, right? And then all of a sudden, he it says he felt power go out from him. And so let's just pick it up here in verse 25. It says, now there was a certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. And immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out from him, turned around to the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? 
But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. (laughs) I forgot to read all of the parts in Luke chapter 4 that I wanted. Like the main part, I just got jazzed about verse 18 and and just moved on. So let's go back to Luke Luke chapter 4. Sorry. Just like... Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then He closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He said to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. <clears throat> so all bore witness to Him, and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Listen to this, this is the part I want to highlight. You will surely say to me this proverb. Everybody say proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Physician, heal yourself. Now, later we find out in the story there that they reject his ministry and they take him up and they're going to throw him off the brow of the hill. That's how angry they get, how angered they get by the interaction there. Isn't that funny? Jesus says, I'm here to heal you. I'm here to heal your broken heart, here to open your eyes, here to set the captives free, here to proclaim the year of God's favor, and they want to throw him off the cliff. But I want you to notice something. He says, you will say to me this proverb. Now, I always kind of looked at this because it's the those that are being adversarial to Jesus' message and ministry that this quote is being attributed to. But actually they didn't say it. If, if you look at it, what they'd start to say is, you're out of your mind. Basically, in our modern conceptualization, you have mental illness. There's something wrong with you. You're sick in the head. Then he says, surely you will say to me this proverb, but it doesn't say they actually said it. He's reflecting back to them. Physician, heal thyself. So a proverb, Jesus calls it a proverb. What is a proverb? A wise saying. Jesus didn't say, surely you'll say this to me, you know, this joke or whatever. He called it a proverb. So Jesus considered the words, physician, heal thyself, to be a wise Saying, yes, yes, it was a wise saying. Jesus said it was a wise saying. The problem was the misapplication. So in other words, what he's saying is, you're coming at me with all these accusations, so you're saying to me, in essence, physician, heal thyself. But Jesus is basically saying, I don't need to heal myself. Got it? Now, I'm going to take what's going to sound like a deviation, but uh, it really isn't. When you survey Mark's gospel, particularly the gospel of Mark, well, let's start with Luke, because we started with Luke, finished with Luke in the reading. Let's start with Luke. When you survey the gospel of Luke, one of the things you discover is that the term sinner, the word sinner, is used more in uh, Luke's gospel than anywhere else in the scriptures. 
It's interesting. The term sinner in that culture refers, particularly throughout Luke's gospel, to those who are considered cursed and cut off from God, and therefore those that are most marginalized by the religious institution of the day. And Luke belabors the point of Jesus going to the sinners and ministering to them. For example, when he's walking by, you know, we had to learn that song in Sunday school. I don't know if any of you learned it, but, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for he wanted the Lord to see. Remember that? Zacchaeus is considered the biggest sinner in his town. Yet Luke highlights for us, it's the only place it's highlighted in Scripture, that Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house and has lunch with him, or whatever, has a meal with him, and then says, today salvation has come to this house. But he's not referencing salvation from eternal conscious torment. He's referencing the transformation that happened inside of Zacchaeus. It's in Luke's gospel that we're told the story of the prodigal son. And only in Luke's gospel. So it's as though he's belaboring the point that God's heart is open to those, and maybe even especially to those, to whom the religious community has closed their heart off to. A really good read is, uh, there's a book out by, I think the guy's name is Ken Bailey, that talks about the parable of the lost son through Middle Eastern eyes. And he goes through each layer of the parable of the prodigal son to point out how much dishonor was taking place in that culture. That when they're being told this story, what the son does is absolutely horrifying, but what the father does is even more horrifying to them. Because it totally upends their concepts of right and wrong and how things should be handled and how people should be treated. That's Luke's gospel. When you survey Mark's gospel, you discover that the emphasis is on the works of Jesus. There's not a lot of teaching in Mark's gospel. There's a few parables, like in Mark chapter 4. There's uh, some stories where Jesus uses some examples and expounds on things. For example, in Mark chapter 10. But there's not a lot of teaching in Mark's gospel other than that fourth chapter. Most of it is emphasizing the works of power throughout. What's interesting about both of these gospels is neither one of them read like the gospel that you hear today. If you look at Mark's gospel, for example, it starts out, this is the beginning. Now, Mark's gospel is the oldest gospel account that we have. It's the very first one that's written. It's it's the one that can be traced back closest to the time that Jesus lived. And therefore, it's called the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no mention of the virgin birth at all. It begins with the baptism of Jesus. And then it says, he went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then what you see is he casts out demons and he heals people. (laughs) He casts out demons and he heals people and he preaches the gospel of the kingdom. 
There is no mention of hell. In fact, there is no mention of an afterlife at all. There is no mention really of needing God's forgiveness. And there's certainly, there's no mention of the fall. There's no mention of Adam and Eve. There's no mention of you're rotten to the core and you need to repent. None of that. There's no emphasis on right or wrong behaviors. No emphasis upon what God finds acceptable and what God doesn't find acceptable. In fact, Luke is kind of in your face saying, what you have said God finds unacceptable, God actually has found acceptable. It's in Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts as well. So it's in in Luke's account of the early church where Peter has God speak to him and say, what I have called clean, let no man call unclean. And Peter learns that day God's talking about people, not about food. But somewhere along the way, the church has seemed to have lost that. We seem to have no problem calling anything that we don't like unclean. We seem to have no problem uh, identifying in a binary sort of way who's in and who's out. Who's, who's part of the club, who's going to heaven, who's going to hell. We seem to have it all figured out and seem to know all how it works. And we say that it all comes from this book because this book is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And I don't know what we thought. I mean, I, I, the more I've studied this book, the, the more I love it, the more intricacies I see within it. But the less I'm inclined to believe that it is the dictated, mandated Word of God for me and my life. I do not believe that. And I know that upsets people. (laughs) I know it does. But please hear me out. Don't just turn me off because that violates something that you believe deeply because, like anything that anybody believes, you've heard it repeated over and over and over and over and over again. And every time you've heard it, you've said yes. And when new information comes along internally and consciously, you say no because we believe this. And then you've put your time into it. You've put your investment into it. You've put your life into it. You've put your emotion into it. So that literally you believe that this is the dictated written word of God that is mandated for you, that is a guidebook for life, that believe every promise, uh, believe every statement, claim every promise, obey every commandment. And you, frankly, you don't even know what's in there. You can't because you can't obey every commandment. You can't even come close to obeying every commandment. And some commandments you don't even want to obey. But you believed it so strongly that you will not allow your biology, literally, you're hardwired in your brain to say this is how it is. And it's not the Holy Spirit that's checking you. It's the discomfort that everybody feels at any time when a core conviction and belief becomes challenged, whether it's a truth or a lie. It is a psychological reality, not a theological reality. Is it a biological reality, not a theological reality? However, here's what frustrates me the most. When we cling to doctrines and preach beliefs as though they came from this book, when if you really study this book, you find out it says nothing of the sort. Nothing. All right. For example, we say this is the word of God, but in the pages of this book, 
Paul says that he preached in Colossians chapter 1, the fullness of the word of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You can look at every time the word of God is mentioned in this book, and it's talking about the gospel of the kingdom, not the New Testament or the Old Testament. Neither had been had a closed canon at the time of Jesus. The New Testament hadn't even been written yet, and the Old Testament was not a closed canon of Scripture until after the destruction of Jerusalem, which was 40 years after the life of Christ. So don't tell me when Paul says he's talking about the Scriptures, he's talking about your Old Testament Scriptures, because you can't possibly know that. These are just historical facts. So here's my question. So how did we get from the gospel of the kingdom and the power of Christ and the love of Christ and all those things to this sort of we know who's in and who's out. We have we have formulas and we have transactions that we make like like we've turned the gospel into a spiritual transaction. This happened in the Reformation, but we are the heirs of it. And here's what I mean by this. Here's what I mean by this. You know, the Reformation occurred because uh, the Catholic Church was selling indulgences. And we think that's just selling salvation without understanding how the transaction actually worked. And indulgence, here's what they taught people. Because they believed that you had to get into heaven by through the Catholic Church and obeying the laws and the word and whatever and the dictates that came through the Catholic Church. (laughs) So now, by the time you get to the Dark Ages, it's not enough to be baptized and just belong to the church. You have to obey the church because if you don't obey the church, then God's going to punish you with eternal conscious torment. Now, it sounds like maybe somebody in power had a vested interest in getting people to believe that. But they needed money. They needed money. And so what they said was, here's what a saintly life looks like. You you, you take a vow of poverty, because this is what the priests were doing. Why? So the church didn't have to support them. If you come into, if you come under, I mean, wouldn't you love, how many, anybody in here ever had a business or had an employee? Wouldn't you love that if all your employees had to take a vow of poverty before they came to work with you? And then, so if you could convince them that's what God wants and they're being chaste and they're being holy, then you got them. So they said, this is what this looks like. And so, but if you're wealthy, and and certainly if you're a playboy, I mean, if you're like, uh, who's the guy that that made the magazine and had the mansion? Um, Yeah, if you're like Hugh Hefner, man, you are, you're going to fry in hell. But there's a way that we have come up with a way for you to be saved. If he lived back then, because there are some people who are so wicked, right? Like, say, Hugh Hefner, for example. But there are some people that are so righteous that they have so indulged in righteousness that they have abounding credit. Like, if the, if the cost of uh, admission was $100, they worked in their piety for that $100, but they worked so hard that they actually have $500. But once they get in, the, everything will be provided for, so they don't need the other $400, so they indulged in righteousness. So what we'll do is find the rich people who are wicked, and if they'll give a gift to the church, then the priest who stands in the name of Jesus Christ and in the name of God will be able to transfer the credit of the indulgence to the wicked person so now they can get in. It's like giving people tickets. You know, the, the, the thing is sold out, but here I have some, here's my ticket. 
Well, Martin Luther, what most people don't realize is Martin Luther transferred that idea to Jesus Christ. He still believed you had to get in through your works. He just said, we can't do it because we're born rotten to the core. We're dirty, rotten sinners on our way to hell. And you can't do anything good and you can't save yourself. But Jesus died on the cross. But not only did He die on the cross for forgiveness of your sins, but He lived a perfectly sinless life on your behalf. And He indulged so much in righteousness that it covers the entirety of humanity. And you don't have to buy it. You just have to believe it. And if you believe it, then there is a transference of indulgences of the righteousness of Christ that comes from Him and is given to you. Now that is the history of that teaching. Whether you know that or not, it is not in the Bible. It is not. Oh yes, but pastor, it talks about justification. Yes, because you are using a Lutheran definition of justification by faith. You are not using a first century Apostle Paul definition of justification by faith. And that's your problem. (laughs) You are using a dark ages idea born of the Catholic Church of what God is actually like and beginning on the same rotten foundation that they do. You just made it easier. What do I mean by that? Okay, so so how did we get... Here, here's the thing. What is faith in Mark's gospel? What is faith? Because Jesus is doing these acts of power for people. But the main teaching, the primary teaching, if you read through the gospel of Mark, is faith. Wasn't it from Mark 11, 22, 23, and 24 that the faith movement was born and came out of? Have faith in God. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. And if you do not doubt in your heart, but you believe whatever you say will happen, you'll have whatever you say. What does Jesus tell the lady here with the issue of blood? Daughter, thy faith has made you well. So faith in a biblical sense, gospel sense, is a living expectation and power that connects you to an outcome that is better than what you had before. Do I need to say that again? In other words, the faith of the Gospels is faith expectancy. It's real life faith. It's, it's faith that can move mountains. It's faith that can heal the sick. It's faith that can bring change and transformation to your lives. It's faith that can work miracles. It's faith that can walk on water. It's faith that can calm the storms. Uh, I'm, I'm preaching way better than... That was faith. That was faith in the Gospels. But something happened to us in the 4th century. There was a major shift that happened. There was a major shift that happened, and it was at the Council of Nicaea. So the Council of Nicaea was called to settle what's known as the Arian Controversy. There was a certain man in, in, I can't remember where he's from, his name was Arius, and he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He believed the Scriptures, he was a devoted believer in Jesus and Christian, but he had many followers, and here's what he said. He said, Jesus is the Son of God, and He is the Logos, or the Word, out of which everything has sprung forth and everything has been created. But Jesus Himself 
is not God, but the Son of God, so therefore He had a beginning before the beginning. He, he was the creator of all things. He's the agent of creation, but He had a beginning before there was a beginning. And there were certain other people at that time who said, no, that's wrong. He's always been God. And this caused a major rift. Think about this. This caused a major rift. So they come together at the Council of Nicaea. And two major things happen at the Council of Nicaea. The first thing is, is they take a vote. They, they, they argue about this stuff. They take a vote and Arius loses. Arius and his followers lose. And I believe it was Athanasius who came out of that victorious And so they said, okay, this is the creed. Ready? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And then when it talks about the Son, we believe in the Son, it says He is God of very God, light of very light, begotten, not made. So the issue was, was He eternally God or was He... Where is any of that? In the scriptures. Jesus, Jesus in one place in Mark's gospel and, 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 uh, Matthew's gospel, he turns to his disciples and he says, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? They said, oh, well, some are, you know, say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets reincarnated. Some say, um, you know, whatever. You're John the Baptist risen from the dead. And he looks at him and says, who do you say that I am? They didn't sit there and say, well, you know, Peter says you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says good enough for him. He says, this is the rock upon which I'm going to build my church, right? They didn't sit there and say, well, Peter believes that you were God of very God and light of very light, but, but I believe that, you know, maybe you had a beginning before the beginning. And Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, no, it's not enough to believe that I'm the Messiah. You've got to believe that I'm God of very God, light of very light, eternally begotten of the Father, begotten and not made. They didn't have that kind of discussion anywhere in the Gospels. So here's what happened. They said, this is our faith. Watch this. This is our faith. And they gave the Nicene Creed. And then they said, anyone who is not true to this faith is a heretic and not a Christian. Then they said, here's the Gospels you can read publicly. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Every other Gospel needs to be destroyed. And there was, and we wouldn't even know about it except for some parts of history. And there was some Egyptian Coptic Christians that said, we're going to bury these suckers because these are too good to burn. And then they dug them up in the 20th century. So now we have access to all kinds of gospels and, and, and the concept of what first century Christianity was like has completely changed after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi Library in Egypt. Right? So then what, what determined your faith, your faith was no longer expectancy. It was no longer a living faith that could access power and work miracles and heal and bring transformation. No, no, no. Now it was a creedal faith. It was, it was, I have to agree with these creedal statements put out by the guys who won the debate. Otherwise, I'm not a Christian. 
And that's when it began to be decided who was in and who was out based on the creed that they believe. So Martin Luther comes along and he says, no, we're going to have a new creed. (laughs) Around the same time as the Nicene Creed, you have a man named Augustine. Saint Augustine, and I I don't want to be too hard on him because, you know, he was reading a bad translation of the Bible. He did not read Greek. He read Latin. And in the Latin translation of Romans 5.12, it says this, that all people sinned in Adam. So he developed the idea, watch this, he developed the idea and crystallized the idea that you were born bad, that you were born in sin, that you were born totally corrupt, and there's nothing you can do in and of yourself that is good, there is nothing you can do in and of yourself that is that is pleasing to God, uh, and, and God hates you basically for who you are. He hates the wickedness and iniquity that's in man. And so therefore, there needs to be a salvation. There needs to be a plan where God Himself, because it's got to be someone outside of the human race. So therefore, it can only be God Himself. So we... So here comes God, the Son, has to be born of a virgin because ancient people did not understand that women carried an egg. They thought that all of life was in the semen. And the woman was just the receiver of it. So... This mission had to be accomplished by a man who was untainted by original sin and by the fall. Is this sounding familiar to you? This was all formulated and meted out by Augustine, who had a bad translation of the Scriptures. So it begins with a problem. The church, since that time, has been giving people a cure for the disease that they gave them. I looked online and I found this, this site, and this is not lost to evangelicals. This is not lost to Christians. Because I, I found a site that said, the title of the article was, Get Them Lost Before You Get Them Saved. And it starts out with this real evangelical dilemma. Have you ever tried to get someone to pray the sinner's prayer and they didn't see the need for it? Or worse, you got them to pray the prayer only to have them say after they prayed the prayer, well, I would have gone to heaven anyway even if I hadn't said the prayer. (gasps) What is the problem here, saints? This is how the article goes. What is the problem here? He says, I'm here to give you the answer. And he said these words. You did not get them lost before you got them saved. Think about that. You did not get them lost before you got them saved. In other words, you did not convince them that they had the need for what we were offering. See, the church has nothing to sell if it can't convince you of a spiritual need. It has nothing spiritually to offer you if you yourself are not spiritually bankrupt. So they have to convince you and convince the world that you are spiritually bankrupt so that you will buy what they are selling. So, and what they are selling is a cure to a disease that they got you to believe in but doesn't exist. The foundation of it all is you're wrong, humanity's wrong with God. We've lost the idea of faith that changes things. Faith that connects you to something. Faith that connects you to invisible realities. And we said you have to believe a doctrine. If you don't believe this doctrine, you're out. But that is not in the Gospels. I challenge you to go read them. 
You will not find in Matthew the story of the fall. You will not find in Mark anything about your nature needing to be changed and become a new creation. You will not find it in Luke. You will not find where he was telling sinners that they needed to beg God for forgiveness or say a prayer or receive him into their heart or even believe in him. In fact, when Jesus talks about his death on the cross, he never says anything about it being in exchange or necessary for any forgiveness from God whatsoever. As though God had to get his pound of flesh before he was able to forgive. My God, what kind of a monster is that in the sky? Oh, I want to forgive you, but i got to punish my child and make sure I really get it out punishing him. And oh boy, now I feel better for just beating the crap out of my kid. Oh, now I can love you. Because you've got to have an answer. He's got to be able to do it somehow because you have to be fixed. You're broken. You're corrupt. You're sick. You're bad. You're wrong. You're... But once you believe like us, there doesn't have to be any evidence of your faith. Listen, the woman with the issue of blood, she had evidence of her faith. Jesus, when he said, if you speak to the mountain, it'll move. He had just cursed the fig tree and it died because of the power of his words. He had evidence for his faith showing up right here. This doesn't require any evidence. You just have to make sure you intellectually assent to the right idea. And then if you intellectually assent to the right idea, then now this exchange that Martin Luther created that comes from the Catholic Church selling indulgences, it's just a sanctified version. It's a cheap version. You don't have to buy it now. You just have to believe it. That's what gets you saved. It's not in the Gospels. There is no mention of a fall. John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he says that he is the light that gives light to every person that comes into the world. There is no mention of original sin. There is no mention of Adam and Eve whatsoever. There is no mention of a fall. There is no mention of paradise. There is no mention of getting back to paradise. And the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus didn't say, if if you'll believe this, if you'll repent, you'll get to heaven when you die. It's not in the Bible. It is not in the Scriptures at all. It says this, The time is now fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your mind, because that's what the word repentance means, and believe the good news that the kingdom's here now. Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, Father, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was preaching a present reality that was to transform the society. The people that were hearing it were not hearing it. Oh boy, we better get it right and make sure we pray the prayer right or we're not going to heaven. They didn't hear that at all. They heard it as a new civilization, a new society of people that was being formed and cast by the person of Christ who was the representation of God upon the earth the representation of the image of God upon the earth what and then what happened was the power mongers in the church reshaped the story told a story around it and gave meaning to it that wasn't there in order for them to profit through power and money and control 
You better believe like us or we'll kill you. And so, and so we think we have to be orthodox Christians and there's certain lines that we won't cross because then we're not orthodox. And we uphold a system responsible for the Spanish Inquisition, responsible for the Crusades, responsible for the, the murder of, of native people throughout North America. Responsible for wars and bloodshed. More wars and bloodshed in the West have been fought over orthodoxy than any other single issue. So let's look at this woman with the issue of blood. What's an issue of blood? We know she was menstruating. That's what that means. What we don't understand is that Leviticus chapter 15 has a very long list of rules and laws for women who were menstruating. When a woman was menstruating, she was unclean. She was considered unclean, and she had to be seven days off of her period before she could be clean again. Now, what does that mean to us? That she was just dirty and she needed to go take a bath? No. You you have to understand that to be unclean was to be unacceptable for God or anything that had to do with God. To be clean was to be normal. And to be sanctified or holy was to have the touch of God upon your life. But you, but you could not have that which was holy and that which was unclean coming together. Because it was that favorite word we love to use, an abomination. Now what you don't understand is that the rabbinic, during the rabbinic period that Jesus lived, unless you've studied this stuff, I guess you don't understand this. I don't mean to be condescending, but I'm just, nobody's a nerd like I am to go in here and want to research this stuff. There were, they were obsessed, the rabbis were fixated on, on menstrual cycles. So that by the time of Jesus, they had, they had added long lists of rules and to the purity laws and whatever. Here's, here's the next thing to understand. Women were considered, they were not human. The Greeks did not consider them human and neither did the Jewish rabbis. The Jewish rabbis said she was taken from man, so she's one step further from God than man. One of the most influential rabbis of the time of Jesus said it's better to burn the Torah than teach it to a woman. A woman could not divorce in that society, but she could be divorced for burning the toast. Seriously. You burn the toast, get out of here. And here's the thing. The woman had no means of survival apart from patriarchal society. If you did not have a man, you could not survive. So divorce was a death sentence. So do not stand up and try to apply the same principles that are in the book in an ancient culture about divorce to today because you're not even talking in the same categories. The, 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 the prescriptions on divorce were there to protect a woman. Today we'll sit a woman down who's being abused by her husband and we will pull out this book and tell her it is the word of God to her that she is to submit to her husband. That she is to obey him and call him Lord. And if you say, oh, well, that's terrible, then guess what? Just mark those verses out of your Bible. Or quit telling me it's the Word of God. Do one of the two. Be consistent. Say, this is the Word of God for all times and all places. All 
I mean, we are so disorganized in our thinking. What if, what if, you know, I mean, people think we're a cult anyway. What if we started a, a polygamy? And people say, well, the, 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 the model of marriage is between one man and one woman. No, it's not. It's between one man and as many women as he can buy. You can't just focus on Genesis. That was just the beginning. But after that, psh, come on, baby. Wives and concubines. Well, that's in the Word. But see, y'all are kind of frowning like, oh, we wouldn't do that. What would you say to yourself? Well, that was back in that culture. But then these other things that were back in that culture, that's binding today. How do you put, you're just choosing off your preferences. Not out of submission to the Word of God. Let's just be honest about it. So maybe what we've missed in the gospel is this. Maybe, here's what I'm saying. Maybe, just maybe, just to entertain this idea with me for a little bit, all right? Just entertain this idea with me. Entertain with me the idea that there is nothing inherently wrong with you. And there is nothing inherently wrong with any other human being. Entertain with me the idea that God is not fixated on our behavior and makes the mainstay of His relationship with humanity based on whether or not they ask for forgiveness. Based on whether or not they throw themselves at the mercy of God. Based on whether or not they pray the prayer so that they get in and are under God's grace and not under God's wrath. Well, what if what if that's not true? What if, what if that's not the portrait? What if that has nothing to do with the mission of Jesus? What if inside you is the imago dei, the Latin for the image of God, the imago dei? What if inside you is the light of Christ that needs to shine forth? And what if inside of every single human being, what if every single human being on the planet is a child of God? What if every single human being on the planet is the icon, the image of God? And what if there is no nature that has to be cleansed or no nature that has to be changed? What if it's really true in the Genesis 1 account that God created mankind in His image and after His likeness and He said, here's the deal, guys. You rule and you have dominion upon the earth because I have made you gods, because I have made you in My image. I have made you lords over the earth and lords over creation because I have made you in My image. And there's total equality. It is male and female. He created them. And He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and increase and rule the earth. What if that's the truth? Now here's that, that sounds like good news, but here's the bad news. You ready for the bad news? This, this is the bad news. This is the bad news. The bad news is, as much as we are responsible for all of the atrocities on the earth, destroying the environment, racism, hate, war, murder, exploitation, marginalization. Is anybody going to point their finger? Please tell me there's no one here that's going to point their finger at God and say these things are God's will. 
starvation, famine, disease. As lords and gods of the earth, we've created this. But are you ready? You ready for this? This is the bad news. Then we are also responsible to save it and heal it and fix it. And that's what people don't want to hear. Because we want to believe there's help coming from the outside. We want to believe in a God that is totally other than us. That somehow is going to come down and save us. You won't know. You won't really know if you are saved. You may have assurance inside yourself. You may believe. But it's all a theory. Because you won't know until practice. And the only way to practice that is to die. So you can say, well, I needed a Savior and He saved me from a reality you haven't faced yet or experienced yet. But because that paradigm gets so built in our eyes, then what we end up doing is we live life waiting for a Savior. We live life waiting for somebody to come and save us. We live life waiting for somebody to come and deliver us. We live life waiting for somebody to come and fix us. We have prayer meetings where we we cry out and we pray and we ask God for revival in our city and transformation of our city as though God Himself is holding it back somehow. As though God, as though you want transformation and salvation for your city more than God does. So you gotta talk Him into it. You gotta plead, oh Lord, we plead for mercy. Oh, we plead the blood. Oh, we pray for mercy. Oh God, we repent. Oh, we repent over these because we're waiting for salvation outside ourselves. And what if the gospel is totally other than that? What if Jesus' message is totally other than that? What if Paul's message is totally other than that? What if Paul's message of Christ in you, what if we translate it to Messiah, which means Savior and Deliverer? What Paul is actually saying is, don't look anywhere outside yourself for a Savior or a Deliverer, because it is Christ, it is the Savior and the Deliverer in you that is the hope of glory. And what if Jesus died on the cross... Because a Savior other than us has to die. The idea of a Savior other than us has to die. And what if the truth is that Jesus came to empower you, to empower you to move from where you are to the fullness of your human potential as the icon and child and son and daughter of God that you are? What if He came to connect you to a power and a presence that could take you from where you are now and close the gap and take you to where you want to be? But what if the message is, watch this, Physician, heal thyself. Physician, heal thyself. Maybe Jesus was saying, surely you say to me this proverb as a way of reflecting it back to them that that's actually what He came to empower us to do. He didn't come to heal us. He came to empower us to be healed. He didn't come to save us. He came to empower us to be saved. He didn't come to free us. He came to empower us to be free. There's a big difference. So here's the woman with the issue of blood. Look at her. She's a woman in that society which gives her no means or access whatsoever to God just because she's a woman. It's better to burn the the book than teach it to a woman. And she's got an issue of blood which makes her ritually unclean. But here's the other thing I didn't tell you about that. 
Anything she, anyone, anyone or anything she touches, if she, if she touches a cloth and then you touch the cloth, you become unclean. If she touches you as a man, you become unclean. That means you're disqualified from the presence of God. You can't go to the temple for seven days or until you've gone through a ritual cleansing. So here is Jairus, who's at the top of the ladder. And here is the woman with the issue of blood who's at the very bottom of the ladder. And they intersect in the person of Christ. If you only hear the story literally, you're going to miss the power of that point. They intersect in the person of Jesus. And Jairus, here's this woman who takes her life in her own hands. Because here's Jairus, his daughter's on the point of death. There's a sense of urgency here. And this unclean woman broke our laws by touching a holy man and making him unclean, therefore unqualified to minister the power of God that Jairus needed. And Jesus stops the parade. And he turns and he says, says she told him the whole truth, but watch what he says. Watch what he says. Watch, watch, watch. Daughter, hmm. <laughs> See, she wasn't connected to anything patriarchally. She wasn't connected to society. She, she didn't have a father. She didn't have a husband. He reconnects her to the family of God. Daughter, watch this. Watch this. This is what we do today. This is what we do today. It was the power of God. It was the power of God. I don't want any man to, to take glory. We're, we're not, Lord, if you'll move in power in our service, we will not let any man take the glory for it. All the glory is to you. The moment we take the glory, the, the anointing goes away. Right? It's not me, it's the power of God in me. Why? The only reason you have to disqualify yourself is because you bought into Augustine's bullshit. I'm sorry if that offends you. I use foul language on purpose to penetrate your conscious mind. Jesus does not do that. Jesus does not say, look at me, man of faith and power. You know what? Let's get some cards. Let's schedule a meeting next week. Let's advertise it. Let's put out signs and wonders and miracles and let's get a crowd together so we can get have a big meeting and get people saved. He didn't do that. He creates no... Watch this, watch this, watch this. Saints, please get this. He creates no dependency to himself in the woman's mind at all. Instead, he takes the locus of power and control for her own life and her own healing. And he places it away from himself and inside the woman. So then he can say, go. All right, let me back up just a second. Are you okay for a second? If you read Mark's gospel with this in mind, what you see Jesus doing is releasing people into their humanity to be who they were meant to be. He heals the man with leprosy because if you're laying on that bed with leprosy, you cannot be the human being that you were meant to be.
He goes to the father and the son where the son is being thrown by demons into the fire and he heals and restores the relationship so that the father and the son could be and experience who they were meant to be. And in this one, but here's the key, in this one, I mean, it's found throughout the gospel, but the key is this. It's the faith inside of you that does the work. Physician, heal thyself. See, since Nicene Christianity, we have said, don't trust yourself. Your body is flesh. It's sinful. It's evil. And we know all those biological urges that come up. That's got to be bad, right? So the only place we can experience pleasure with our bodies is at the buffet. Okay, I'll wait for that to kick in. And then you wonder why everybody's overweight and why they invite you to potlucks where you're having ZD and fried chicken after church. It's the only acceptable pleasure. So you can't trust your body. You can't trust your heart because it's deceitful and wicked. So they get you to divest yourself of all your power. Why, saints? See, early Christianity, in Jairus and in this woman, there is total equality. It's what Paul said, in Christ there is neither male nor female. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. He took the highest of the society and the lowest of the society, and they intersected in Christ and found their equality. But the church couldn't have any of that. So the groups that they hated the most were the groups that were teaching women and allowing women to hold positions of office and allowing pagans, even pagans, to pray in their services or even pagans to minister to people. I read you those quotes in the first service last week. So anybody that's doing that, get rid of them. Why? So so you have to divest yourself totally of power and depend on a God other than you, depend on a Savior other than you, outside of you, to come from somewhere to save you so that you feel like you have no power. But Jesus did not do that. He looked at the woman and he said, Woman, your faith, daughter, your faith has made you well. Watch this. Now go and be made well. In other words, the same faith that got you this will heal the rest of your life. Daughter, you're on a good journey. He took the locus of power and he put it back in her and he said, you've got everything that you need to heal your life. Now go and be healed. And so maybe the message is to connect you to the power and the presence of who you are. The power and the presence of Christ in you so that you can heal yourself. And once you've healed yourself, you can be a healing presence within your family. You can be a healing presence on your job. You can be a healing presence throughout your community. But you can't do that if you're in and they're out. And you've got to get them to pray a prayer and look up here. You're totally directing them the wrong way. And so here's what's happened to the church. You ready for this? This is my last point. Here's what's happened to the church. Jesus, the the gospel of Jesus is to come and restore you to your humanity, to restore you to your dignity and your divinity, to raise you up to what Genesis 1 said you were, a God in the earth, a Lord in the earth, a king and a queen in the earth, and someone who has the power and the responsibility to fix the mess that we're, we got ourselves into to begin with. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of the kingdom. But instead of pointing people to their inherent goodness and godliness and power, instead of pointing them to the invisible realities which faith represents, watch this, there is no evidence of God in the world 
or in the church for many people. And the church has lost the power to communicate the gospel in such a way to really connect people to invisible realities, to the substance of things hoped for. So they have to look at something outside that for them, something outside of themselves, because you are not divine and God does not live in your heart. And brother, you better not look in your heart because you're just going to find evil and wickedness there and deception. And So I can't point you to the God that's in you. So you have to look outside yourself for God, but we can't see Jesus. We can't see the Holy Spirit. We can't see the Father. He's not in any kind of physical manifestation. So watch this. They point us outside ourselves to find God and we can't find him. So what do we do? We create idols. We create a visible, tangible connection to God and then relate to it as if it is God. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. This book, I love this book, but what you are holding in your lap and what I'm even talking to you from is the work of a man's hands. Divinely inspired? but written down by a man, decided upon by men, preserved and copied by men, sold by men, and preached by men. So it gives you... So in essence, so when we say, I will obey, I will believe every statement, I will claim every promise, and I will obey every command, We treat the book as though the book was God. When we make decisive issues concerning people's eternal destiny and relationship to the divine using this book, we relate to this book as though it is God. If we say, this is the word of God to me and my rule book for life, we relate to the book as if it's God. And we are doing the same damn thing that the Bible says, when you have an idol, you are worshiping the work of your own hands. You are worshiping the work of a man's hands. And so we point you to the book instead of pointing you to yourself. And so you want to know God? Get to know yourself. You want to know God? Quit looking without. Start looking within. You want to find the power for salvation? Quit waiting for it to come out from heaven and start looking inside of you. And this book will point you back to yourself. And this book will point you and give you wisdom and give you, give you the, the keys to understanding how to operate as a son and a daughter of God, as an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ Jesus. It will call forth what is within you to empower you to become who you've always been. That's totally different than get them lost before you get them saved or give them the cure to the disease that we just gave you. But here's the thing, guys. Whatever's going on in your life, Come on, we know it's true. We pray and pray and pray to God and nothing happens. It's because there's no Savior coming outside of you or other than you. You have to find 
the faith, just like that woman with the issue of blood, the faith and the presence and the power within you to act decisively and congruently to change your own life. Physician, heal, die. Lift your hands up just right where you're sitting. You don't need to stand, but just lift your hands up. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for a releasing of the presence and the power of divinity inside of each one of my brothers and sisters. Father, I pray that the revelation of their own godhood, of their own lordship over their own lives, would be revealed to them in such a mighty and powerful way that they would begin to take decisive action to change their lives, to break their own yokes, to heal their own wounds, to heal their own diseases, to find their own authentic desires and live a life of authenticity and dignity and honor and power and glory. And Father, let us see everyone on an equal playing field. Let us shake off the bondages of Rome. Let us shake off the bondages of the Reformation. And let us move in the power of the original gospel as it was proclaimed by our master and teacher, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to me and allowing me to give you this offering today. God bless you.